Good morning. This morning's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verse 33 to 16, verse 8. Mark 15, 33 to 16, verse 8. This is God's word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to, G to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Forgot to give the uh, confirmation members certificates. Sorry. Caleb, can you come up and receive this, please? And Bethany as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, much time has passed, so... Um, I'll, I'll keep the 
message as short as possible, but I, I did prepare a decent amount. Uh, but let me begin by first um, asking you to do this for me, okay? Whenever, whenever I say, uh, Jesus has risen, I want the congregation to respond with, he has risen indeed in a loud voice, okay? Jesus has risen. Wasn't good enough. Okay, one more time. <laughs> Jesus has risen. Okay, good. So because it's Easter, uh, instead of continuing with our regular act series, I, I wanted us today to focus on one of the crucifixion and resurrection stories found in the Gospels. And, you know, there are many ways one can approach these kinds of stories, but today I'd like to, to focus in on some of the key witnesses to this particular event. And uh, we're going to hopefully learn something from each of their responses today. And I basically uh, used the key witnesses as the outline for today. So part one, uh, the Roman centurion is introduced. Part two, Joseph of Arimathea. And along with Joseph, I'm going to sort of tack on Nicodemus, and I'll explain to you why that is later on, okay? And, and part three, the women and the disciples are also mentioned here, okay? So there's three parts. Uh, first, the Roman centurion. In verse 39... We read this, and when the centurion uh, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, talking about Jesus, right? He said, truly, this man was the son of God, is the declaration that comes from his lips, right? And this should surprise us for a few reasons. You know, first of all, Jesus just got scourged and crucified by the Roman soldiers, and he's being uh, mocked. He was mocked by the crowd. You know, people are shouting, if you're really a king, then save yourself. You know, there's complete humiliation. So Jesus, he looks weak and powerless, both in the eyes of the Jews and the Romans at this particular point. But then there's a centurion that responds in a very unexpected way, right? I mean, think about it. For him to see this weak and lowly Jew essentially dying a criminal's death, unable to save himself, you know, being mocked from all sides, and for him to respond with, truly, this man was a son of God? I mean, this is weird. <laughs> if you really think about it, it's strange, because for him to respond this way, it would have required a, a complete reorientation of his values and worldview. You know, if you were a loyal Roman citizen... See, it meant that the only person you would call the Son of God was who? You should know this by now. Caesar. Caesar alone was king. He was God. And every time you, you pulled out a coin from your pocket, you were reminded, in case you've forgotten, you were, you were reminded that Caesar was the Son of God. It was inscribed in every coin as a reminder of what, we, what you were to believe. And so for a Roman centurion, right, there, there was no way you would have associated power and deity with death on a cross. It was virtually unthinkable. One commentator put it this way, that the Gentile soldier heard the same great cry as the bystanders. Why then did he 
confess and not mock with the other. See, it's, many commentators observe the same thing and they ask the same question. This is strange what's happening here. This response is out of the ordinary. You know, the centurion must have changed his perception of the very basic things that governed his entire life is what this commentator writes. What makes this an even greater miracle is that, as you can imagine, centurions, they were not tender-hearted people, right? I mean, they've seen the brutality of war, of torture, of blood spilled everywhere. They were close to death. You know, they, they witnessed death up, up close and personal. I mean, oftentimes, they were the ones actually doing right, the, the killing and the torturing, they were hard men. One writer puts it this way. This man had seen death and had inflicted it to a degree that you and I can hardly imagine. So there, there, here was a hardened, brutal man, yet something had penetrated his spiritual darkness, and he became the first person to confess the deity of Jesus Christ after Jesus' death. Could that be true? I mean, this, this is how Jesus showed love toward his enemies, right? He showed love by graciously opening this centurion's eyes, who was once his enemy, to help him see the upside-down nature of his kingdom, giving him the ability to treasure a weak and dying man on a cross, Unthinkable. No one can respond this way unless God does a supernatural work in your heart and reorients your values. That is what conversion is. Conversion includes a radical change in perspective and a change of heart. And many of you are here because You've already experienced that work of grace in your life, you know, praise the Lord. But I also am aware that some of you might be in a different place, okay? Some of you are here, perhaps, because you know that something important has been missing in your life for quite a while, and Something in your heart has been yearning to hear more and more of God's word. And whenever God's word is explained to you, perhaps you're realizing, hey, this makes a whole lot more sense than I used to think. And if that's where you are, I think the C.S. Lewis quote may resonate with you. He once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. In other words, the Christian faith, God, the fact that he designed all things and ordained all things in a certain way, seeing the world through that lens, it begins to make a whole lot more sense to you now. Perhaps that's what you're experiencing. Everything's sort of now gradually clicking in place. Ask yourselves this. Can anything in this world truly make any sense apart from a God who gives a certain order 
to life. You know, I really do hope that you can see more clearly now than you've ever been able to, especially over these past couple of years. You know, I, I've just, I see it much more clearly, even myself, even as, even as someone who's served as a pastor for so long, it's much clearer in my mind that once the world chooses to deviate from God's design on any given issue, everything begins to unravel and break down. Everything begins to crumble. And so some of you may understand that a little better now. But maybe you you still feel a bit stuck because you know in your heart that to follow Christ means that you are called to treasure Christ above all things, including all your former Caesars that you previously given your life to. And you're not quite ready to give them up yet. But I tell you, surrendering your life wholly to Christ is an important step you will need to take if you want to be a genuine follower of Christ. But I also want to be clear on this, in case you're confused. Because if if you've not been part of church for a while, it, it may be confusing, all right? Surrendering your life to Christ fully, okay, does not mean that your personal priorities will be all of a sudden perfectly aligned to Jesus' priorities, okay? I mean, there are plenty of Christians still who've been serving Christ for many years, and I may have, been, I may have some blind spots too, by the way, okay? It's like I, I tell myself, I'm, I'm fully surrendered to Christ, but I'm telling you, I'm, I may have some blind spots too. My point is that there are plenty of Christians who serve Christ many years but are still confused about many things, and they will need more time to grow in the wisdom and grace of God. And so we are not expecting perfection from anyone. I mean, imagine if the Roman centurion actually became a genuine follower of Christ. Imagine, brothers and sisters, how many years it would have actually taken for God to hone his rough character, right? His cussing lips, his harsh demeanor. It wouldn't surprise me if he suffered from some form of PTSD after witnessing all this tragedy around him. And if that's the case, he would have needed much more time to recover from that as well. Life is messy. Sanctification is a lifelong process. We're all a work in progress, are we not? And so my point is that becoming a Christian does not mean that you will perfectly live out this reality of Jesus is Lord over all the Caesars of your life. However, however, right, to fully acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and to commit to living a life of submission unto him is still a very necessary and important first step you need to take if you haven't done so yet. That's the beginning. You cannot begin the Christian life until you confess Jesus is your Lord and and you're willing to submit your life to him and under his authority. How can we consider ourselves true followers of Christ if we're not even willing to do that, right? Right? Let me also say this, since it's Easter Sunday, and I know that we have 
not only members here, but, you know, uh, brothers, sisters who haven't been with us for a while, and also guests. If you count yourself a believer, but you know that you have perhaps been not doing so well spiritually, perhaps you've been backsliding for some time, let me ask you humbly to confess your shortcomings and failures to the Lord. You know, please, you, you should not downplay the significance of your failures. Right? They are not small failures. Right? If you truly have been neglecting your spiritual lives, you have sinned against the Lord. So acknowledge that and confess that to him. But also know this. Right? Jesus, as a son of God, has given his life for you so that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been fully covered by his blood. Amen? So that though you are deeply flawed, he is able, by his grace, to present you blameless before God the Father as he serves as your perfect advocate, defender, and friend. That, that is grace given to us. And so, you should thank him for such grace and resolve to live for him once again. We also see Joseph of Arimathea in this story. And like I said, I want to tack on Nicodemus to this. Why, why do I do that? Well, because even though Mark doesn't mention Nicodemus, John, the other gospel writer, John, does mention Nicodemus. And based on John's account, we know that Joseph and Nicodemus actually acted together in asking Jesus' body from Pilate, okay? I mean, we, we can conclude that they were in a very similar place in their faith journey. They were very different men compared to the Roman centurion, right? I mean, the, these men, let me, let me share uh, some things they had in common. They were both members of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin, and they were both, therefore, well-respected among the social elites of their day. You can liken them to, you know, our modern-day politicians who are essentially the ruling class, right? They, they, they call the shots, essentially, and we kind of felt it the past two years. And, and you know, these, these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, you can consider them very culturally sophisticated men, much different from the hard character that was the Roman centurion. And Matthew, in his gospel describes Joseph to be a very rich and powerful man. And that means Joseph had a lot to lose, right? I mean, if you have a lot, you know, a lot of wealth, a lot of status, and guess what? If you make a misstep in life, right? If you get on the wrong side of the powerful elite, then guess what? You have a lot to lose. It's very risky. There's a lot of risk that you're taking, you know, if you choose to make a sort of a questionable decision in life. And that's what we see where Joseph is. Now, what, is written, what has been written about Nicodemus that's interesting is that he was willing to seek out Jesus, but he was only willing to do so at night, right? Some of you know this, right? And so we, we've called Nicodemus in the past Nick at night. Or he was the original Nick at night, right? That's one way to remember him. That's who he was. He was unwilling to risk his reputation and status for Jesus because early on in his life, those things were far, far more important to him 
And so Joseph and Nicodemus, essentially, they're in the same place. Right? They were both secret followers of Christ until this moment in the story. Right? That's why Mark makes it clear that this act of asking for Jesus' body, it took courage. That's the word he uses. Right? It took courage on their part. So something changed within, something changed in their resolve. It's not as if things were less dangerous and risky for them. Their circumstances were the same, but in the face of this tremendous pressure, they had this newfound faith and boldness and freedom. See, they didn't have to do this. No one was pressuring them to do this. They did it voluntarily. They were risking their status and reputation for Jesus. See, if they, if they got found out by the wrong people, they could lose their jobs, right? If they were teaching in an American university, they would lose tenure. If they were in Hollywood, they would be shunned and forget all any nominations in the future. No, there'd be nothing, right? No invitations to social events. It will be devastating for their careers. So what do we learn from Joseph and Nick at night? Well, we learn that people who are followers of Christ experience a shift in their priorities, a very radical shift, and the power of the idols, of their idols in the past, they weaken drastically so that now they're able to practice spiritual courage and boldly live out their faith with such freedom. That's one thing we witness here. You know, brothers and sisters, whenever I witness courage or boldness in believers, I consider that to be a clear sign of faith in a believer. But let me also make this clear. I don't believe that if you fail to exercise courage at any given point in your life that, that you're automatically disqualified from the faith. That's not true. Because like I said before, there are such things as weak and cowardly Christians. There are such things as struggling Christians or Christians who have been backsliding for a season. And so, even though a lack of courage demonstrated by some of us may not disqualify us, I will say this also. It would be greatly concerning if cowardice was a regular pattern in the life of a believer, right? I mean, I'm sure you can share that concern with me, because at some point, it, it would beg the question, you know, what does it mean, brother, what does it mean, sister, for you to actually trust in the Lord? Have you no boldness at all? Would be a natural question that arises. You know, in our story today, notice the man who used to be Nick at night, or I like to think of him as also Mr. Shady. He is Shady Nick. He's now operating in broad daylight, unashamed to be associated with the one who was mocked, scorned, and crucified by the powerful elites of his day. This is a change of heart that is drastic. I know I've been emphasizing courage and boldness a lot lately, and even our brother Jeff mentioned it earlier as he was sharing. We didn't, we didn't plan that, okay? That was his, his free thinking. But I, you know, I, I mentioned courage and boldness a lot 
Um, because I look at it this way. If, if we are not willing as Christians to show any courage during these times we're living in, where the church is experiencing much milder forms of persecution, I call it soft persecution, right, compared to the early church. I mean, there's no comparison. They had it much more difficult, much harder. No comparison. But if, if we're not willing to show any courage now when persecution is like just this much, then guess what? There's, there's absolutely no chance. There is no chance that we will show courage when things get far worse. How could we? This, this time, I believe, is part of our training ground. This, this is where we're supposed to train to kind of build up our courage and boldness. It's like a season of putting training wheels on, you know? Practice some courage right? so that when real trials come, you will be ready. I, I have to. I have to emphasize this because, as you know, my, part of my job is to make sure that all of us remain faithful to Christ, that we do not compromise our faith no matter how difficult the times may be. Right? We have to persevere together faithfully. Thirdly, we have the woman and the disciples mentioned. Now, this, this group was the group that first witnessed the empty tomb and the resurrection. And I, I think Keller says something very helpful here. Uh, he says, one common objection among modern people like us is this. You know, ancient people believed in miracles, you know, like resurrection. But we modern people, we know better, okay? We know better. And his argument is that that's not true, actually. That's not true. <laughs> it's not true that ancient people, you know, easily believed in miracles and whatnot, you know. Because think about it. Jesus repeatedly says in the story, all through the various gospels, witnesses we have, that he was going to rise on the third day. To his closest disciples, I'm going to rise on the third day was his teaching. So, like, on the third day, you would think that at least one of the disciples would say, you know, hey, guys, it's the third day. We should go check out, <laughs> go check out if, if what Jesus said is true. But that's not what happens. The reality is that the male disciples, all of them were dejected and they scattered like cowards. And even the women, they weren't expecting to see an empty tomb. Right? They were just doing what was customary. They, they were going to the tomb expecting to wash his body. That was their plan. And so no one expected a resurrection because the very thought was inconceivable. You know, once Jesus was crucified in such an undignified manner, they thought it was over. Right? Especially this was, this, was, this was difficult for the Jewish mind because for the Jew... It would have been virtually impossible to worship a man who died a criminal's death. Their theology would not allow that. How can God be sinned? It didn't make any sense to them. It was illogical and irrational, even criminal. And so this very idea of Jesus being the resurrected Messiah it went against their core beliefs. Once he was crucified as a criminal, it was over for them. But see, something happened 
like something happened to the Roman centurion and to Joseph and, and to Nicodemus. Something happened that radically changed their minds. And the most plausible explanation to the sudden change is that they really saw, they, they truly witnessed the resurrected Lord. I mean, can you think of a more plausible explanation? I, I tried to, <laughs> to examine all the possible explanations. I can't find any. You know, if, if you don't accept that explanation, then you, you have to come up with another plausible explanation as to how a small band of lowly Jews essentially changed the world while gladly dying for what they believed. Right? You have to come up with a plausible explanation as to how hundreds of people all of a sudden claimed to see the resurrected Jesus and were willing to face Roman persecution unto death. And it's honestly irresponsible and careless if you just simply brushed off the resurrection as, well, you know, people could have hallucinated. Nowadays, <clears throat> I just read one common expression is, people, they must have had these bereavement visions. They call it bereavement visions. You know, they were, they were grieving the loss of Jesus and so they would just have these dreams or visions. And so based off of that, you have the church born. Right? Does, that, does that seem plausible to you? But that is the best explanation that critics have been able to come up with. Right? It's not plausible. It's not convincing. I mean, you'll have to be the judge of what's plausible in your minds. But again, I, I want to ask you, was it possible for all of human history to radically shift based on the hallucinations of a small group of lowly Jews? Or did this radical shift take place because the resurrection of Christ truly happened? If, we, if you believe in the latter, then you will join me in worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior. And though life's troubles may overwhelm you at times, you will learn to live with resurrection hope in your heart and, and be comforted in knowing that the power that raised Jesus from the dead now also resides in you. And as one writer put it, Jesus lives not only beyond you. In other words, see, we're not just hoping for a future resurrection life. Jesus does not live only beyond you, but also in you, never to abandon you and always ready to renew you. In other words, the grace of God given to us is that we get to taste resurrection life even now as we live this life in this present broken world. That, that ought to give you tremendous hope. You get to experience, you get to taste the goodness of the life that Jesus has purchased for you, even now. I'll end with a story to illustrate sort of the, the practical difference believing in the resurrection ought to make in our lives. Uh, it's a story of a, I heard from one of my friends. Okay, he's a pastor friend. 
a very smart guy. He was on vacation, um, so he was traveling somewhere on a plane, and he sat next to a younger lady who was reading a book. Uh, and it was a book written by one of his favorite authors, David Brooks. Okay, don't judge him. But uh, Susan, or sorry, his name was Susan, okay. His name was Susan. He, he asked, this is, this is my problem. As you get older, as you get older, you do diminish mentally, okay? <laughs> How do you like that book? He asked, right? And the young lady was like, well, I haven't really uh, read the book fully yet, but I took the class taught by David Brooks himself at Yale, okay? And it turns out she just graduated from Yale and was deciding to uh, attend law school soon. She was waitlisted at Stanford and already had gone to, to Harvard, so basically, she was a very smart person, right? And my friend thought, uh, given her pedigree, that if, if uh, he told her that he was a pastor, that she wouldn't want to talk to him anymore. But to his surprise, uh, after <laughs> uh, revealing his identity as a pastor, she was even more energized, and, and she began to uh, go right after him. You know, pastor, doesn't it teach in Leviticus that... Uh, you know, we're not, we're, that we're to execute homosexual, or homosexuals. And uh, how can you Christians believe in such a teaching? And so in his mind, he was thinking, wow, this is really going to be a fun plane ride, isn't it, right? Um, she would, you know, just bombard him with these questions. You know, we, we have a right uh, to choose our own life, do we not? And if you're against homosexuality, how can you say that, that that's harmful in any way? And she, essentially, as she was sharing, she was revealing to him what her core beliefs were, like what her religion essentially was. She, she was telling him what her Lord was. You know, we have a right to choose our own life. Right? That reveals who her God is. And it, was, it wasn't apparent to her, I guess, at the time that she was defining her life with such religious conviction, right? She had this, this uh, commitment to truth, like her own version of truth. She had a certain way of defining marriage, a certain understanding of what a man and a woman was, understanding what a family or society should be like. Right? And so she had her vision, and then you had you know, my, my friend's vision based on what the Bible teaches, right? the Christian vision based on what God's word says. And so there was a pure clash of religions, you know, our Lord God versus her Lord. And so she ended up complimenting my friend for engaging her in an, in an intelligent way, uh, but she concluded, you know what, based on what I've heard, there is no way I can believe in such a God, okay? And my friend said, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry to say, if that's the case, then really there is no place for God in your life because based on what you've been telling me, you're the only one who gets to define what it means to be God, right? You're the only one who gets to define what is being God. Brothers, sisters, I'd like to conclude by just offering a challenge, you know, wherever you are in your personal spiritual journey, 
I hope you do realize that Jesus is Lord no matter what. Okay? He is Lord over me. He is Lord over you and over everything else, whether you acknowledge him to be your Lord or not. Right? The question is whether you will worship him as your Lord or whether you'll usurp his authority and live in rebellion against him who is still your Lord. And, you know, the reality of the exalted Christ through his resurrection, I believe that this is meant to wake us up. You know, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, whether we've, you know, been maturing, whether we've been backsliding, whether we're just completely new to the faith, the resurrection is meant to wake you up. It's meant to challenge you. It's meant for you to respond to it in a certain way. It's meant to show us that it is utter folly to place ourselves on the throne that Jesus alone is meant to occupy. And I hope you're able to see that. Jesus has risen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith and the gift of salvation that has been accomplished by the work of your Son through his death and resurrection. For those of us who may not know you yet, may you grant them your resurrection life as you reveal yourself to them and as they bow before your Lordship, as they repent of their sins and as they place their faith and hope in you. And as we as a church publicly declare our faith in Christ this morning, Help us, Lord, to more deeply experience the power of the resurrection that gives our lives meaning and purpose and offers us the grace to fulfill that very purpose through the work of your Spirit. Christ has risen, so we praise his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So stand together and give God praise.